I feel like this is the part where we're always like, oh, do we have any updates in our lives? And like, I never do. But I will say my my one update, the only update I have this past week is I put up my Christmas decorations. How cool. I don't think I'm going to do that this year. What? What? Why? Because I don't want to take them down. Why not just leave them up forever? Because Gerald doesn't like that. Well, Drell can deal. I feel like this, <laughs> like, usually I would wait until after Thanksgiving and be pretty diligent about it, but I just need some Christmas joy in my life. So <laughs> everything uh, went up. I also don't really, um, I'm like sitting so far away from the mic. I also don't really uh, care for Christmas all that much. So I'm kind of like, it's just work. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. I understand that. Did you just um, put up a tree or do you have like a lot going on? Not too much. I have like a mini tree. I don't really have too much storage space here. And I feel like if I got a bigger tree, that would just be asking for a cat to climb up it and to <laughs> have it fall and everything break. So I'm not going to tempt fate there. Yeah. But my mom has started like sending in my early wave of gifts and so I wrapped them and put them under my tree so I can just look at them all day and just feel excited. How nice. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's, it's quarantine. It's getting cold. And, like, that's the only way I can kind of, like, rationalize the cold weather being a good thing. <laughs> I went for a run the other day. Oh, and goodness. I just put on, a, like, a long-sleeved T-shirt. And I got outside and I was like, wow, it's really cold. Um, and then I was like just about dying by the time I came back in. Like I couldn't even go for long because I was so cold. And Evan was like, you do know it feels like it's it's like 30 degrees outside and it feels like it's 16 because like the wind was like blowing mm. everywhere. And like all I had was a long sleeve t-shirt on. Didn't have a jacket, didn't have a hat, no gloves, nothing. So one major, I think, point of anxiety for me as like a Floridian living somewhere cold is that I never know what is appropriate to wear for the temperature, if that makes sense. Like, mm -hmm. I know, like, I feel colder. <laughs> and so I'm like, I don't like, yeah, it's 40 degrees, but I really want to put this like huge <laughs> like jacket on that's acceptable um, for like yeah. 40 degrees i think um I, yeah, yeah especially coming from i feel like i came from somewhere chicago <laughs> like <laughs> lake effect snow and all that is like a very real thing so when it's like 40 degrees outside i'm like this is a nice spring day um <laughs> But, well, yeah, when I was in Colorado and when I was in Oklahoma, the winters there were so much warmer. Um, Colorado winters are, you tell me if you agree, but, like, I feel like it will just dump snow one day and it'll be snowy for, like, a couple days while the snow melts. But overall, it's, like, a pretty, it's very sunny there. So yeah. I feel like it never really gets too, too cold. 
Yeah, I I agree. I expected winter to be like god awful here when I first moved and it. I don't think it's been that bad. Um because like I think it's because we're so close to the sun. <laughs> like, right? Because well, yeah, the it's just like is so constantly high. sunny. Yeah. Constantly sunny. And so even though like there'll be there'll be there will be snow on the ground like the next day like you're so close to the sun the sun is like melting away all the snow you mm-hmm. feel like warmer like it almost feels like it's 60 degrees but like it's not i hated um, it i hated the sun i felt like a vampire <laughs> because i'm like in my mind it's supposed to be cold and you like don't see the sun for like three months straight <laughs> i couldn't stand it and I- then like Oh, go ahead. No, I was I personally again coming from the south, I don't mind it. I just I just hate when it is like it will snow for a couple of days and I'm like, "Well, I can't leave my home because how do you even walk in snow?" Well, now none of us are leaving our home anyway. Exactly. Um, do your I thought worst it was this year. <laughs> it was funny when I lived in Oklahoma. I remember one time we had an inch of snow and we got a snow day and everyone like lost their minds. Nobody knew how to drive in the snow. Like people like don't always own like nice winter jackets. So like people are like walking around in sweatshirts in the snow. And like it it was just very funny to me because we like almost never got snow days in Illinois. I remember (laughs) the snow was like up to my hip one time. And we finally got a snow day that day. And that was, like, the most exciting thing. Wait, so do they ever – do they have snow days in Florida? Is that a thing? No. <laughs> no. Um, I heard that it snowed in Florida once after I had moved. So I was in college. And, like, people were like, what is this thing coming from the sky? <laughs> and, I mean, it didn't – it didn't lie. I think it was just, like – basically frozen precipitate like it wasn't That's so weird yeah was like it just it like sleet snow. or something yeah but um i do <laughs> i remember we did have one snow day when i was in college in alabama and <laughs> i don't like it wasn't even one inch of snow like we had it was my first like place that i lived and so we had like this back deck and it had like the thinnest layer of snow like you could still see the wood from the deck Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even, and like my roommates, like let's make snow angels, <laughs> and like everything was shut down, like you couldn't drive, like oh school was gosh. closed. I was just like, this is great. <laughs> like, People are so funny to me. It's fantastic. Yeah. But that is another sil- silver lining to this pandemic is that I don't have to leave my house and like walk yeah. to the train stop when it's snowing or when it's like five thirty in the morning and pitch black and disgusting so you know what i will take it agreed i think because i always live so close to work everyone's always like oh my god you're so lucky you don't have to drive in it but i'm like have you tried walking in like four degree weather with like like the world trying to freeze your face off because it's awful Mm -hmm. um so yeah i'm i'm definitely glad that i don't have to deal with it and i can just order my groceries and stay home yes and i i hope that this is something that we continue after the pandemic of like everyone working from home like maybe all winter oh, i don't yeah. like make it an option I don't know. you know yeah. yeah yeah exactly oh and i just ordered a christmas present and i'm so excited and i like <laughs> need to like keep it a secret and i can't tell you i'm like, 
I'm like starting to order everyone's <laughs> presents now, which is especially worse for me because like I always break down and like tell people what I'm getting them or like I just ask them to like open it early because like I yeah. can't hold it in me anymore, but I'm going to do it this year. I but will, I'm... like I will probably open it once I get it. <laughs> if I don't put up a if I don't put up a tree, I'll probably open it once I get it if that's you okay can. with you. Okay. You can. I'm so excited though. Ah. Okay. Ooh, I'm excited. I can't I yeah. I guess I'll keep yours a secret. I'm very bad at that too, where I'll like get Jarell something and I'll like wrap it and I'll hide it. And then like an hour later, I'll be like, so do you want your gift now? Like I know Christmas is in three months, but do you want it now? That's what I always do to Evan. I'm like, it's up to you. If you want to open it now, you can. But no, oh my God, my mom sent me an air fryer for Christmas and it's like- amazing. It's very obviously an air fryer. Like- I knew it was coming in the box that it was sent in. It says like air fryer all over. It's not like hidden at all. And I still wrapped it. And my mom says you're not allowed to open it until Christmas. And I'm going to stick to it. But I'm also just so excited. No, we we got an air fryer as a wedding gift. And I like I was like, I don't know what I'm going to use it for. I don't really fry things. So I'm like, I don't like I guess it's a fryer substitute. I don't know what I'm going to use it for. And we didn't open it until this year. And so we got married two years ago. Yeah, what? And so we just opened it. And I'm like, I never need to use anything else. Like, the air fryer is amazing. So oh, that very makes excited me so excited. You. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to make I, – I heard – and you'll, like, gag at this. But, like, it's great for making tofu. Um, <laughs> So that's, like, the main thing I'm excited for. But, yeah, I feel like I'm just going to put everything in there, like – Veggie burgers, you sweet can potato also just fries. Like, yeah, I make my burgers in there. You can yeah. also um, like Brussels just reheat sprouts. things. It's like better at reheating. In my opinion, I like the way it reheats things better than like the microwave. I don't so. own a microwave, Natalie. Oh my God. <laughs> How do you <laughs> I'm eat a toaster leftovers? Oven. You just reheat it on the stovetop or we just got a toaster oven from Evan's grandparents. So we, we use that sometimes. You're like a Quaker. Uh, basically (laughs) well we didn't have one when we moved here and now it just doesn't seem I don't know because it's not very good like the only thing that I think I would use it for is like when you want to bake and you have butter that needs to sit out and it's not like to soften butter I think is the only thing I would use it for I use I feel like even though eh, I use a microwave pretty regularly I think I don't know or or heating pads what do you use a heating pad for? Uh, anything. I don't I know. Don't, like, I don't understand. Like a heating pad that you put on your body? Yeah, like if you have cramps or like a muscle hurts or if your feet are cold or if you're cold. Just It's just like a nice little warm friend. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Never thought of that. Okay, so this is going to be super weird, but bear with me. Uh, right before this started, Jarrell had shown me, like, he watches, like, these weird, like, these specific YouTuber guys, um, and this guy, he sometimes just, like, takes headlines and, like, reacts to them, and so the headline, I guess, was, a woman walked into a Chick-fil-A and claimed to be an FBI agent and demanded, um, get, like, demanded a free Chick-fil-A sandwich, and so they called the police, she wasn't FBI, they arrested her, and so... My question is, what food are you willing to go to jail for? <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't know. I feel like depending on how hungry I am, my 
bar gets very low <laughs> on what kind of food I'd be willing to go to jail for. Probably pizza though. Like that's like my number one. I just I, I love yeah. pizza. I was like I think cheese she's pizza say though. Cheese pizza. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a purist, and I believe me, that pizza should be enjoyed in its purest form. I mean, okay, that's fine. I yeah I. I think I'm a I'm a cheese pizza convert, but I will still probably eat it with pepperoni. Um, but I think for me these days, I'm just obsessed with like ramen from restaurants, like big, like I don't know, gourmet types of ramen. And so I'd be willing to put my life in jeopardy for ramen. <laughs> Didn't we go get ramen one time and they like gave us like fish heads or something? I don't think I was there. <laughs> I don't know you were there. We went to like some weird, it like looked like a house of oh, like where people trained. Oh, and like, oh, I feel yeah. like, or like they wouldn't like. It was like very, it was very um, like authentic. And I just asked, I was like, oh, can you remove one thing? And they're like, no, nothing can change. And I was like, okay. Yeah, and that was super Evan, obnoxious. And then Evan was a little sassy. <laughs> of course. That's like his, you know, typical. He, yeah. well, like I've become much less of a picky eater after dating him and also i just think like growing up in life um but yeah it he is like he'll eat anything it's really gross like any we like he'll just like eat like a raw egg or like a fish entire fish head he'll just be like and like he would have been great on fear factor (laughs) yeah probably um i i would get kicked out right away they um have, they had i was watching the other night they had people eat like a 200 year old like egg <sighs> oh my god he would definitely eat that <laughs> like not even what are you listening to <laughs> i'm doing my german lesson oh. oh my god you're just like evan he's been doing french <laughs> lessons and so he'll just be like randomly speaking french throughout the day and i'm like can you please be quiet i am trying to read my book yeah, I do. Um, so you're learning yeah. German? Yeah. Why? Because it's kind of like English. True. <laughs> that is true. Um, you should hang out with Becca. She took German. And Katie did too. And so did my little brother. I'm the only one that took French. <laughs> I also took French, but French kind of sucks. So. Uh, I love French. I love French. What are you talking about? I had the worst French teachers. They were just, like, super awful. And I think that they colored my French experience. I had this one teacher. (laughs) She, oh, I'm going to, okay. So I had this one teacher who she just, like, hated me. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day, like, me and my friend Neil. And Neil is, like, a model student. Like, he he was just great. Mm -hmm. He was really good at French. Um... And he, so he sat, like, ahead of me. And I think, like, we just maybe, like, said something to each other. Like, we, it wasn't that we weren't allowed to be talking at the moment, but, like, nobody mm-hmm. else was talking. And she just looks over, and she was, like, a smoker for, like, the past 75 years. And so her mm-hmm. voice is super raspy. And she looks at us, and she goes, you disgust me. <laughs> <gasps> what kind and of teachers meals. did you have? And, and Neil, he's this, like, super nice, like filipino kid and he just he looks at her and then puts his head down he goes i disgust myself too sometimes <laughs> you know. oh goodness and then i just look at her and i go the feeling is mutual <laughs> oh my god good thing good thing 
<laughs> I'm glad yeah. that you were like sassy back to your teachers because it sounds like a lot of them deserved it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. Oh, um, everybody leave us a review on our podcast and we will donate a dollar to the Center for Victim, National Center for Victims of Crimes. Just my little shout out there. If you like us, then do it. If you don't, then don't. Or even if you don't, give us a five star review anyway. What have you got to lose? Yeah, don't give us anything lower than five stars, but yeah, give us a review. It's fine. You can give um, us a one-star review if it's, like, going to be really funny, but also and don't. also, <laughs> if you can't figure out what you want to get your people for, like, the holidays, check out my art page, Fluid yes. Art by Natalie, and just order a set of coasters. Like, I have tons, and I can make more. It'll be I, great. <laughs> I have a, a Natalie coaster set and Natalie art. And I've gifted Natalie art before, and I can speak to it being awesome. And I already put in my order for my holiday nice. coasters for my little sister, but she forgot that that's what I was going to get her. And so I'm not <laughs> going to remind her because I told her, I was like, she was like, oh, I want to tell you, I guess it like runs in the family. She's like, oh, I want to tell you what I got you. I want to tell you what I got you. And I'm like, no, don't do it. And I was like, oh, it, like, I feel fine though, because you already know what I'm getting you because like, I wanted her to pick out the colors that she wanted. Yeah. And she was like, what are you talking about? I forgot. <laughs> so funny. I guess it'll be a surprise after all. Also, I don't know. Have you checked the Twitter page recently? Mm, how recently? I don't know. Like yesterday, 16 hours ago. Why did you tweet something? No, but there is somebody who I assume is a listener. Um, I Is it okay to say this person's name? Like, do you feel like that's okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, they tweeted publicly. Yeah, if they tweeted publicly. So uh, it's Nate L. Watkins. That's their handle. Nate L. Watkins one. He tweeted us with like a like a list of like female criminal suggestions for future episodes, which oh. I think is like really cool. So thank you. Um, thank you, and, Nate. This is awesome. Yeah, and like most of these I haven't heard of before. So I think like it'll be super exciting for like Rachel and us to kind of divvy up this list and do yes. these. So thank you. I also have uh, someone commented, uh, someone from Australia a, a while ago. I think I sent it to you. It was right around Halloween. So we oh, yeah. hadn't done it because we were in the middle of doing like Halloween related cases. Um, but we did get a suggestion from an Australian case that's like lesser known. So that, um, I don't remember the name of the person, but if you're listening, don't worry. It's on my to-do list just for the next time we do mothers who kill their children. But that's a nice segue into our episode today. Um, I guess we are doing mothers who, who kill their children. Um, <laughs> Wow. I'm sorry. That probably, that just was not not very smooth at all. But it is, you know, a phenomenon that I think we should 
you know, look at and see where things went wrong. And today's case in particular, um, there's not only kind of the the issues with the mothers, but we get a a look into where the foster system um, might have failed these kids as well. Um, So on that note, do we want to get started? Yeah. Um, So (laughs) I... I I just wanted to throw out a quick disclaimer, too, um, that I know we will be talking about where the foster system failed. And I just wanted to say, you know, it's easy for us to sit here on the outside and say, like, oh, my gosh, these people are so horrible. But it's also important to remember that the foster care system is very much underfunded. The people who work in the foster care system um, often have just just an insane caseload that's impossible to keep up with and um you know the families going through the foster care system the kids the workers it's just not always a fun job to have and the kids aren't always the easiest to work with given their situations no judgment there um and you know it's obviously not easy for them to be put in the system so i i know that we will be pointing out the flaws in the foster care system, but we will also talk about reforms that are being made too. But I just wanted to throw that out as a disclaimer that, you know, I don't just want to bash um, this uh, kind of system or the people yeah. working in the system. It's not an easy job to have. Yeah, I think the overall objective and aim and reason why the foster system exists is like noble and great. But yeah, like with most things, I think there's always room for improvement. So and this case took place in like the earlier 2000s so the good news is is that there are a lot of reforms that have already been made and already been taken into consideration so um there's been improvements since then um and you know hopefully there'll just be more and more improvements to come um did we already say who we're doing no okay so um we i think people some people might be aware of this but we're doing um the case of jennifer and sarah hart and so i do believe there's like a podcast the broken hearts um, that are on this um as well and so yeah and rachel uh being the awesome rachel that she is actually wrote the case for us and so we're kind of doing it differently and we're splitting it up so yes Ooh. well natalie is also awesome and edits the entire podcast so <laughs> it's really not any extra work for me to do this and we're just doing this so that we can um catch Cover, up so, and yeah. you know give natalie some more time so from now on we'll be like a week behind um so that might affect you know us talking about like current events or things like that um but just so that natalie can have some extra time to edit so you don't have to do it all at the last minute because that makes me feel really bad hey i actually kind of like it that way so it's all good but um, (laughs) anyway all right let's get into it so um jennifer and sarah hart or I guess they weren't hearts yet. Jennifer and Sarah met while attending North Northern State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Um, for a long time after meeting, they told other people that they were roommates or friends. Eventually, the two came out but lost some friends who weren't accepting of their relationship. Jen said, the, mis- the Midwestern mindset was relentlessly unforgiving and unaccepting. The two decided that they needed a change of pace and moved to Alexandria, Minnesota, where they worked at the same department store. That's like interesting that South Dakota, Minnesota, I feel like is 
as Midwestern as you can get. Yeah, but. that's what I was thinking. I'm like, I I don't know how liberal it is in Alexandria, Minnesota, but I personally, I don't know, maybe would have moved to L.A. <laughs> I don't know. Right, or like Colorado, or they're yeah. just a, a lot more progressive places, but who knows, maybe yeah. they got a job offer there. Yeah. You know, obviously not everyone has the means to just pick up and move wherever they would like to, so. For sure. Um, And so Jen was described as having a big personality and liked to be in charge, while Sarah was more passive and shy. Um, It's kind of like me and you. Just kidding. (laughs) Who has the big personality? I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, where else? (laughs) It's not me. (laughs) So, anyway, so in 2004, the couple took in a 15-year-old foster daughter. An article by the Seattle Times refers to her as Lee. Uh, This is not her actual name. It's a variation of her middle name. Lee's mother was young and overwhelmed. She struggled with raising Lee, who, by her own omission, said... Is omission the word that you're looking for here? Yeah, right? Isn't it that... So Lee herself said that she was difficult to handle at Yeah, that but age. omission means to like leave something out. <laughs> Admission? <laughs> okay. I was, like, I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. Oh, okay. I fixed that. Anyway. Thank you. No, I told you not to judge my grammar. <laughs> it's not good. This well, good also- thing you're reading this part because I would have just said it and like kept going. <laughs> And I also, like, like I only really skimmed it, so I didn't fully read it, so I could have probably caught this earlier, but whatever, It's fine. Sorry. Just roll um, with it. Okay, so Lee's mother was young and overwhelmed. She struggled raising Lee, who by her own admission said she was difficult to handle at this age. Lee said her first six months with the hearts were great. They took her camping and on other outings. She was doing activities she had never gotten a chance to do before. Lee remembers being taken for a makeover at a department store where the hearts worked. She recalls not enjoying it because she was a tomboy and didn't really wear makeup. I totally get that. Hated when my mom would take me places and be like, oh my god, like, let's fix her face. And I'm like, Ugh, my face is fine. I don't want to wear makeup. Yes, I was, <laughs> I was like, uh, I guess maybe, I don't know if I like love the term tomboy anymore, but I was very much like, because I feel like girls cannot like makeup and that's not a weird thing yeah um but i was very much like hated all of that i was in the girl scouts and i like refused to take part because um like in the school talent show as a girl scout troop we would like do a dance or (laughs) i was just like "Eh, i'm not a girly girl so i'm not gonna do it so i would just like sit there and not do it and part of me is like proud of my younger self but i'm like oh my god what like a pain in the butt i was the only one who like sat out my mom was no. the troop leader so i must have been like a great dis- embarrassment <laughs> or disappointment <laughs> i'm sure that wasn't the case but i would have done the same i i don't know i was just very like much myself as a kid and i i'm i'm proud of that and i that would be completely out of my comfort zone but right um, i'm hearing this i'm remembering the i did listen to the the hearts podcast and i thought it was fantastic and anyone who wants a more in-depth look look in this case should definitely check it out um but i think how they 
described it in the podcast was that it was like really weird for her them to take this girl in for a makeover and were maybe trying to to make her into something that she wasn't um yeah. it's been a while since i listened to it so that could be completely off base but um i think that's how it was portrayed mm-hmm. in in the podcast cool a co-worker of the hearts jordy smith remembered how frustrated lee looked jordy remembered the hearts saying that they were having problems with lee and they caught her eating out of the garbage lee was hurt to hear this many years later she said these accusations were false she always had enough to eat and it didn't make sense that they would complain about this behind her back that is strange isn't it like if it wasn't true i don't understand the objective of saying that it is weird and i think we'll see later on too that it's unusual that at this time uh she said that lee was eating out of the garbage because later on their foster children they did not feed their foster children enough and their foster children would actually eat out of the garbage so it's just it's all so weird and -hmm. what comes next is even worse so continue all right buckle in guys (laughs) so sarah and jen told lee about their plans to adopt three more children and that she would have a chance to be a big sister they had even started discussing their plans with officials lee was really excited she saw herself living with the hearts long term she believed that she was going to stay with the hearts until she turned 18 one day without explanation lee was dropped off dropped Dropped, dropped off. braces <laughs> one day lee explained she was dropped off at a therapist's office jenna and sarah never returned and they never spoke to her again lee was devastated and they didn't even say goodbye that's so sad isn't that so messed yeah. up it kind of reminds me um when uh what is it called when you can like just bring a baby to safe harbor um didn't i think one state like increase the age that you can drop off kids maybe i think yeah there was like a story where like there's one state that increased the age that you could drop off kids at like a fire station or something and like no questions asked um and like this dad dropped off like his four kids ranging from like 17 to like oh, i don't wow. know <laughs> like childhood and was just like oh well that's so sad <laughs> like yeah i guess i would rather have them be with people who care about them if that's the case but that's yeah. just so but traumatizing term- and yeah, terrible in terms of the in terms of the experience of like hmm, where are we going and then, like getting dropped off and someone drives away that's very sad but also it's just so it shows that i think it's you know lee throughout the vibe that i got from this article is that she was very much forgiving of this experience and maybe a little bit too forgiving of sarah and jennifer um because that is just not the right way to handle foster like obviously if you're fostering a child there is a possibility that they might not stay with you forever that there might be a change of plans but that is something that you need to be able to work through with that child you can't just abandon them you know there's i think there's like processing that needs to happen they're a human being like children are people and they have emotions and so respect them enough to like include them in what's going on um and so when looking back on living with the hearts lee believed jen and sarah were really young themselves and maybe weren't ready to foster a teenage girl which is completely possible um i think parenthood is hard at all stages um because there's like a 
developmental stage that you have to just kind of get acquainted to and I imagine that it's even more difficult when you have no parenting experience to jump right into like you know a 17 year old who's like right on the cusp of quote-unquote adulthood and like yeah Mm -hmm. so oh she was 15 but still that's like close enough where it's like exactly you're not yeah especially if you haven't raised the child since they were a baby or a very young kid you don't have kind of that established relationship and um kids obviously come in with a lot of their own opinions and being removed from your parents care at 15 is you know you're more understanding of of what's happening maybe she's been in the foster care system for a really long time Mm -hmm. it's i think Lee is is wonderful though and it sounds like she's been able to get access to the to therapy and the care she needs and I think um the family that that she was taken in with was very supportive and and it seemed like they were a much better fit um but still there's just no excuse in my opinion for just dropping this child off and not like not even saying goodbye that's messed up Uh, In 2006, the couple took in three siblings from foster care in Texas, Marcus, seven, Abigail, two, and Hannah, four. In 2008, they took in three more siblings from Texas, Devante, who was five, Jeremiah, four, and Sierra, three. This set of children had another sibling, uh, Dante, who the hearts declined to adopt. We'll discuss this further on. The family looked very progressive. Two white mothers and six adopted black children. Um, So, first of all, I do have a thought here really quick. Do you feel like there should maybe be, like, a limit on the amount of kids foster families could foster? Uh, Possibly, depending on, um, I don't know. I would say it would have to be a case-by-case basis. Because in this situation... Um, this, these parents were taking in sets of siblings. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think if you're taking in two sets of siblings, that can add up really fast. And I don't, I mean, in a perfect world, no, uh, they would not have to take on tons of children, but there's also not that many people who are willing to take in, um, that many children or, um, I just, I like case things like this just make me wonder about, one you've had one set of siblings for two years and so from there they're aging from nine to four and then to take on another set of siblings that are ranging from three to five like well i think they should have been maybe disqualified because um they adopted the children so they weren't just fostering them but after this instance with the just dropping off the foster Mm -hmm. kid they had before and leaving I almost think that that should have disqualified them from being able to adopt any more children or there should have been, you know, a really long, intensive process of maybe they wouldn't be allowed to foster for like another 10 years or like they had a maybe there should have been like a therapy requirement or something. That's that's kind of my thought. I'm just like, well, regard like I understand they adopted them, but like two years really isn't a long time. And so for like this new set of or the current the first set of siblings to like adjust to like their new life and like get really well acquainted and for these parents to like you know get i don't know become experts or like really you know 
settling into like their new roles than to like bring in a new set like I just think that that's a lot and then in terms of like resources to like devote not just like money but like attention and love and time to these kids but the wait list the wait list is so long for foster kids and especially sets Mm -hmm. of families who are wanting to have their kids be adopted together um, Mm -hmm. that I don't know that they have the luxury to be picky and if people are willing to take in more kids then the other thing that I now this opinion I think maybe it's controversial but as again I see this all the time as a black woman there's something that irks me like it or something that rubs me the wrong way like kind of you know these two white mothers taking in six adopted black children all children who need like homes like they should be taken care of or taken in by people who love them and want to you know mm-hmm. be that support for them but there's something like I don't, what's it like white saviorism that it just kind of right right like, and we'll t- we'll talk about that more don't you worry I whatever no it's very well I I know that we have personally discussed this before I think mm. I think there was one time where you said and this made a lot of sense it's one thing if you are a set of parents and you say we're willing to adopt a child and you know the you don't necessarily specify like a race or whatever and they just the next available child gets given to you if or you adopt the next child or who's ever in need at that particular time and if you know it just happens to be someone who looks different than you then you know you didn't set out to do that but there is, you know, it's very uh, uncomfortable when people just, like, go to Africa to, like, get a baby and come back. Like, Yeah. And I also, I've also seen plenty of times where I don't, like, I've seen, like, white parents take on or adopt or foster, like, black children. But then they themselves don't really, like, try to educate themselves on like what it means for this child to be black like what is this child's experience and that can be like doing the child's hair the right way or Mm -hmm. making sure that they're you know fully immersed in their black identity and like know what that means while living in a family where their parents don't look like them Um, right but it almost seems like within the system if there is a parent who is adopting a child because it happens very often where people Mm -hmm. adopt children who look different than than them or come from a different culture um that there should be some way to link the the gap or um you know it should be the responsibility of the agency and the parents to to want to participate in you know services or you know therapy kind of addressing those issues just to because it it's not like you can't just ignore it and Mm -hmm. i think you're absolutely right that people should be connected with their culture and shouldn't just disappear because you get adopted by white people it's like randall on this is us guys just watch like all the flashbacks with randall and like mandy moore and milo ventimiglia like that's it's a lot anyway Um, I should watch it's it. It's a lot. It's heavy. I had to stop watching it for a little while because I'm like, this is contributing to my depression. Maybe I won't watch it. <laughs> I will cry so much. It's oh no, it, like be if you do watch it, be prepared to cry. But it's also sometimes that like feel good cry every so often. But it does speak a lot to some of the stuff that we're talking about. I'll just stick um, to the Great British Bake Off. 
<laughs> so uh, perhaps they were acting selflessly. They were two people who wanted to grow their family. It's often challenging to find families that are able to take in siblings and much less likely that they would take in two sets of three siblings. When possible, the foster system tries to keep siblings together, so they must have been overjoyed to find two seemingly perfect parents. Jen stayed at home to raise the kids while Sarah went to work during the day. From the beginning of from the beginning there were warning signs that I can't read sometimes. From the beginning, there were warning signs about what was taking place behind closed doors. In September of 2008, Hannah went to school with some bruising on her arm. When a teacher asked her about the bruises, Hannah said she was beaten with a belt. In this instance, there were no charges filed. Shortly after, a sorry, shortly after all six of the children were removed from school for about a year before they were re-enrolled later in the fall. Um, were they just like not in school? Like they weren't learning anything? They probably were like doing homeschool. (laughs) I don't know. Um, unfortunately, this didn't appear to be an isolated incident. In November of 2010, Abigail, now six years old, alarmed her teachers when she showed up to class with suspicious marks. Thankfully, the teachers alerted the authorities, and upon investigation, Abigail revealed that Jen had held her head under cold water and punched her as punishment. What in the heck? (laughs) Right? Oh, my God. That's, like, literally... It's, like, one thing... I understand that a lot of people disagree about, like, I personally am, like, anti-spanking, and, like, I don't think that you should ever put your hands on your children. I understand that there are, like, cultural differences about what's appropriate, um... But this is just straight up torture. Like, this isn't even, you know, kind of a gray area. This is just bad. Yeah. This isn't like a slap on the hand because the kid tried to put their hand on the stove. It's Mm -hmm. like you would do this, like you would torture people with this. I don't understand. Anyway, um, so Jen, oh my God, Jen found a penny that she believed Abigail had stolen, which in her mind warranted this torturous punishment. The other Hart children were also interviewed by police. They shared they shared they were often spanked, grounded, and were sometimes denied food. These poor kids. Um, Seriously? When, when they interviewed the parents, Sarah actually took blame for the incident and was convicted of misdemeanor domestic assault. Jono should have been a misdemeanor, um, even though she wasn't the one who, I guess... Maybe they both were doing it. I don't know. Um, She was sentenced to probation and one year of community service. After this, the children were pulled out of school. This time, it was for good. They no longer had access to the systems that had stepped in to protect them. They were now isolated from the outside world. That should be shady in itself. Like, there should have been, um, you know... I'm sure that they were being followed by, or they should have been being followed by, um, you know, the system just to ensure that the kids were um, being taken care of. You know, I people do make mistakes, and I don't think that an incident is necessarily means to have your children taken away from you forever. Um, but it's certainly, like, we pay our tax dollars so that children will be protected. So... But- it also, it's, and I know it varies from state to state, but um, it is interesting to me, like, where you see 
like in some cases like why kids are taken away from their biological parent i can't remember the exact reason for your case last week but i remember feeling like huh that wasn't Mm -hmm. like it's interesting to me that they just took her away from her parents i'm glad you brought that up because i in my section that i assume you haven't read i (laughs) take a deep dive into because this is something that i'm i'm not sure if they covered it in the heart podcast i think they might have um brushed on it but I do go through why the children were taken away from their biological families. And it just makes hearing all this especially more frustrating because for whatever reason, these parents were allowed to to keep their children, um, even though they were very much intentionally harming them versus Mm. the other parents who I think a lot of it was um, kind of falls under the umbrella of just being punished for being poor. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I do think that there's an aspect of, like, race to it, where, um, one, like, just thinking about, I remember reading this study about, um, and it was, like, so long, (laughs) um, but I remember reading it, and it was, it was about just how, like, black, it, it was particularly about black girls, and how they're, like, more adultified, and that also includes, like, just feeling like, you know, they can, you know, handle, like, more emotional and physical abuse that, that probably, if it was a white child, would have been intervened upon, mm-hmm. um, and so I could see that as also being a part of it, where, and then also the other side of, like, feeling like black parents are unfit for their children, mm-hmm. um, like, more than, like a white parent who holds a child's head underwater and punches her in the head. Mm-hmm. Um, like I don't like it, it's uh, anyway, I'll just stop. <laughs> so no, it's, it's a um, lot. And I think that in this case in particular, that the whole, um, you know, the communities and things like that, I'm sure I like had a little comment that I put in here, but the whole white privilege, white saviorism that um, I'm sure that, the people in the system were like, wow, these two parents took in six children. So maybe they were cut a little bit more slack than they deserved because you're like you were saying earlier, they made the choice to take in this many children Mm -hmm. and the system allowed them to take in this many children all at once. So it, to me, it seems like there was so much more slack for, for them um, than was given to their own biological families. And like with the being taken away from their biological family, I guess what I what I was going to say, but then I tried not, I felt like maybe it might be a little too controversial, but I'll say it is that there is in a lot of our society, whether people are accepting of it or not, there, a a lot of the ways black people are treated sometimes are like, is a weird kind of evolution from slavery. Mm -hmm. And in slate, like when slavery was around, it meant nothing to rip a, black child from the arms of their enslaved mother and put them with a new white family who is Mm -hmm. now their owners and so there's like an aspect of like feeling like these people are like less deserving of their humanity and like it doesn't bother i think authorities or you know different whoever's who are in charge of like making these decisions to just take a to take black children away from their parents um and i think that that i feel like that's one kind of aspect to it that i don't know i feel like it it warrants probably a a more like nuanced conversation but Mm -hmm. um that is one consideration um 
that I don't think people just like readily think of immediately. Um, Anyway, so in 2013, the Hearts decided to pack up and move to a suburb of Portland, Oregon called West Lynn. Sarah and Jen attempted to set up a haven for the family. They raised goats and chickens in their backyard. Sounds like a cult. Um, I want to do that. Am I, I just, a cult? I mean, you can't, but I, <laughs> in terms of saying they wanted to create a haven for their, like, I just feel like that's usually kind of what happens when cults mm-hmm. are like, we want to be self-sufficient away from the rest of the world so mm-hmm. that nobody can, you know, like the authorities can't tread on our rules mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they raised goats and chickens in their backyard. This meant, th- sorry, this might've been to help boost their crunchy hippie vibe and make their family appear more like the idealistic 21st century family. They became well-known in the festival community and would attend many music festivals as a family. Again, this helped them with their very liberal, very hippie-like reputation. Do you like my descriptors? I think I said hippie one too many times, but that's very much (laughs) the vibe that I was getting. What what does crunchy mean? That's like... (laughs) Oh, that's what you say about like very hippie people. Like they're crunchy. In my mind, I feel like it's like crunchy, like, like they, they like granola shower? or something. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why. Okay. That's just something I've heard before. They're like crunchy. Okay. So uh, the music festivals were focused on being socially conscious. During the gatherings, they would participate in dance, yoga, and music. At these events, the kids seemed happy. They would sing and dance. Their positive demeanor drew the attention of many attendees. Yes. And I put in a comment here, although it's something that we've already talked about, is that even during these festivals, I feel like people might have noticed that things were a little bit off with these kids, um, but they might have just overlooked it because like, oh, oh my gosh, these two nice white saviors are willing to take in these kids in the foster system. Aren't they so great? Like, just, I, I can see that as being a reason for, and maybe people would be afraid to say anything because they don't want to be viewed as prejudice especially like socially conscious people that are trying like extra hard not to um offend others that might have been you know a protective factor for the family of the of people not wanting to say anything and like maybe be accused of being prejudice so it's possible that that was another reason that they were able to get away with what they were doing for so long yeah so jen was an expert at social media She used Facebook as a way to paint the story of a happy family. These kids were part of her tribe, and the tribe had to stick together in a world that was racist, judgmental, and not accepting of their lifestyle. Jen and Sarah were no strangers to prejudice after they came out. There are certainly many people in the world who think gay couples shouldn't be allowed to adopt children. From an outside perspective, people would assume the couple would be especially empathetic to anyone who experienced this hardship. Jen tried her best to portray their lives as happy. Sure, there were difficulties, but nothing their tribe couldn't overcome. She would post pictures of their family taking road trips, smiling at festivals, and filled her page with posts about the challenges of raising a blended family. Even though Jen created a picture-perfect family on social media, the people in Oregon were starting to catch on. Um, I think this is interesting. Um, there's the the 
case of the guy who killed his wife and children here in Colorado. Um, I don't, I can't remember his Chris, name. They recently, Chris Watson? Yeah, probably. Um, but they recently came out with a documentary and I didn't really watch it, but I did read like a bunch of think pieces because it was just a little stressful for me. But I guess like one big aspect of it was like, oh, like here's the wife creating this like, you know, like she's posting on all the social media. And so and like showing how happy her family is and Mm -hmm. so people a lot of people are like we had no idea and like it's kind of just a reminder that like social media is fake yes well that's very much on like a larger scale of there being lots and lots of deception but even like the average person on social media it's important to remember that people usually put kind of like their highlight reel on social media Mm -hmm. or so many people like edit their photos or um it's just not a realistic portrayal i feel like i feel like this way i'm sorry if you're one of these people but like um you know couples that like post a lot on social media i secretly think that they aren't happy with their lives so that's why they're posting so much on social media we do not post uh very often on social media evan Um, doesn't even have social media neither does Jarrell. he's just like i don't want to be surveilled (laughs) evan judges me for having it but i i deleted my twitter i don't post on facebook ever yeah i mostly just use it as like oh i can like kind of passively keep tabs on the people in my life that or like um my extended family like i can see pictures of their kids and stuff and like i'm sure that if i ever have children i'll post pictures of them on there um but yeah i'm not like a facebook hardcore my mom has gotten really into facebook lately oh really she was so anti-facebook for the longest time but she sends me like <laughs> like three times a day i'll get like a facebook message from her with like a cute video of facebook <laughs> and i'm like mom what are you doing oh, you used yeah, to my... be like i used to get like grounded from <laughs> facebook my um my husband's grandmother she like just got on facebook and the last time we saw her she's just like oh i love the facebook oh my god <laughs> she's constantly sending me things on like facebook messenger and i'm like that's okay, so cute this is fine so uh the oregon department of human services were contacted in 2013 the individual who notified the authority said the kids pose and are made to look like one big happy family but after the photo event they go back to looking lifeless This wasn't the only complaint the department received about the Hart family. Someone else reported that the kids looked like trained robots, and they were believed the kids were scared to death of Jen. Additionally, the kids looked very small for their ages and appeared to be underfed. Even a friend who stayed with the family would later on say that Jen ran the family like a boot camp. That's sad. In the end, the department in Oregon didn't find any hard evidence of abuse or neglect. When they visited the family's home in August of 2013, all six of the children said they weren't being abused and said that they were grateful for Jen and Sarah providing them a home. It's important to note that the kids that kids in the foster system sometimes have to hedge their bets. If they complain about a family or a situation, they might get remove, removed removed yeah, and yeah removed uh if they complain about a family or a situation they might get removed and put somewhere that's worse they are aware that they may get separated from their siblings or they might fear retaliation if they aren't removed from the home it might be difficult for us on the outside to understand why they might not be entirely truthful truthful i don't think it would be too surprising to hear if 
this was the case for children. Um, yeah, I think that's true of all kids. Like, even mm-hmm. kids, like, that are possibly being abused by their biological parents. Oh, absolutely. It's, like, it's, like, what else? Like, who knows what else is out there? Like, like you know, the devil you know is better than, you know, the devil you don't or whatever the saying is. But um, Right. And especially and also if you. Oh, I was just going to say the kids in the situation, they were separated from their older brother. So they already kind of lost one of their their siblings so they know that it's a very realistic possibility yeah and so in 2014 the hearts attended a black lives matter protest in portland and Devante was photographed hugging a white police officer in the picture there were tears streaming down Devante's face this photo quickly became a symbol of unity and went viral on the internet uh at a time where tensions were high after events in Ferguson, Missouri, this photo provided hope that there might be some that there might be a chance for peace. The spotlight was on the Hart family, and while some might think that so, that social media loving Jen would embrace the attention, the family actually turned down requests to be on television interviews. Jen said she wanted to protect Devante's privacy and took a six month break from social media. Once the attention died down, Jen returned with a post saying, this year slammed us hard. Um, So I remember that image or that picture. I personally didn't care for it, but he was cute. Um, Right. And now that reading all of this, like, it, it definitely felt like propaganda. It felt like, I don't know, a child any child especially a black child that would just walk up to a cop and just hug them right and so it might have been stage yeah like my instinct was that this kid was either told and i didn't i had no context for who the hart family was i had learned about it after like the tragedy and like being told oh that was the the boy from that photo op Mm -hmm. was also in the family um it felt staged and the other thing i was like i wonder like in hindsight, I was like, I wonder if this kid was crying because he wanted help. Oh God! <laughs> you know, like that—that that, that was kind of a thought. I was just like, what if this kid was actually like, please save me, take me. Right. You know? Well, I also um, feel like another reason, and this is something that I've seen on my own social media feeds, is that when people have um, opposing views to certain things that are maybe just like a little bit prejudice internally they'll like share oh well a black person said that they're okay with this so i'm gonna share the black person saying that they're okay with it being this way like for example like oh like this black person likes trump and is like a huge fan and think trump's doing amazing things for the black community so that makes it okay that i like trump because one black person said it was okay yeah exactly it's almost like being used as a prop i guess and so once again the family relocated this time to rural woodland washington their new neighbors bruce and dana DeKalb, thought the the new family in the neighborhood acted very strange their blinds were nearly always drawn and the six children rarely left the house so I'm going to critique this. I don't think it's weird for people to have their blind. Wait, what does having your blinds drawn mean? Like shut, <laughs> right? Okay. So I don't think that's weird because I hate sunlight. I hate outside light. So <laughs> like I've never opened True. our blinds. I've never opened our blinds, curtains, whatever. So I But know, that's it's weird. one thing if on social media they were saying, oh, the kids are always 
playing outside and i'll i'll touch on this later where like mm-hmm. they very much said like oh the kids are always outside we have a bunch of animals like and it's one thing for like adult humans to be like we hate the sun which like yes i agree i also hate the sun but it's like just i think it's a little bit unusual for kids not to be playing out in the yard especially with such a large family and um you know it's just See, a little yeah and so the the cabs became alarmed after Hannah showed up on their doorstep at 1.30 in the morning. One day in August, Hannah was frantic and scared. She said she had dumped, jumped out of her second story window. She was also missing her two front teeth. Hannah begged them to hide her, saying, don't make me go back. They're racists and they abuse us. Not long after, Jen showed up to take Hannah home. The next morning, all eight members of the Hart family showed up at the DeKalb's house to set the story straight. Jen said that the kids were drug babies, and this is why they sometimes acted out. How racist. Wow. Okay. Right? Um, Also, like, like, even if they, you know, did come from families that were, like, struggling with substance abuse, like, I don't think it's their information that they're allowed to share with other people, and also, like... That's just, like, why would you use that terminology? That's so insensitive. And so it's, like, one thing if, like, legitimately your kids have, like, a medical condition where they might be going through a bit of a hard time and, like, you know, there's, like, more delicate ways. Like, if if a child had autism and, um, you know, had outbursts from time to time and you explain that to your neighbors, like, oh, you might hear screaming, like, my child has autism, I'm so sorry, uh, you know, there's just better ways of going about that but also in the context of this is a lie (laughs) like in the context of that like the fact that they chose that stereotype as the lie as opposed to saying oh you know she just has behavioral issues or you know oppositional defiant like anything like but you choose to like you choose to go the racist route of like oh just a crack baby no big deal you know um, I just think that that's... It's messed up. Yeah. It's so messed um, up. Anyway, she explained that Hannah's biological mother was bipolar. Okay. Which also, like, doesn't I think that anything in this case. I think that there were... Um, I'll get into this. One parent did have substance abuse issues, but, you know, it wasn't necessarily that their children were, like, born addicted to drugs and that um, one of the parents did have bipolar disorder, but it doesn't really... Like, you can have kids and be a great parent and have bipolar disorder. Two things can be true at the same time. Like, yeah, her mother could be, or Hannah's biological mother could have been bipolar. But Hannah could also be terrified for her life at the hands of, like, Sarah and Jen. So Right. It's just, it would be one thing if we didn't know all these bad things that were happening behind the scenes. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe they just weren't the best at, like representing things but it's very much like oh we're pinning this problem on somebody else and like not owning up to it when we are very bad people yeah so yeah she they said hannah's biological mother was bipolar and the missing front teeth well they were knocked out after hannah had accidentally fell it's great that they have an answer for everything Mm -hmm. dana wasn't convinced and asked if she could speak to hannah alone Jen wouldn't allow it, saying, we do everything as a family. Hannah gave Dana a note apologizing for the night before. The note said, 
she was merely lying to get attention. This was all too much for the DeKalbs. After the so after the Harts left, they made a call to the authorities, reporting Jen and Sarah for abuse. But as far as they could tell, no action was taken. I find it interesting that they waited. Like, do you know if I don't know? I I feel like if the children, if Hannah had arrived on my doorstep at one thirty a.m., I would have called the police at one thirty-one. Right. No, like, that's fair. I mean, but consider that they were in a rural area, and I feel like, um, you know, in some families, the mindset is kind of like you know what's happening is their own business and like we don't want to rock the boat like we don't know like it i agree like i would be doing that but um i don't i don't know i get it the weird incidents didn't stop in march 2018 15 year old Devante approached bruce while he was working on his truck in his front yard front yard (laughs) front yard Devontae asked Bruce for some food and begged Bruce not to say anything to his parents. The DeKalbs wanted to help these kids any way they could. Clearly, the authorities weren't going to do anything, so they took matters into their own hands. Devontae gave the DeKalbs a wish list of food and asked them to leave it in a box by the fence separating their yards. He didn't want his parents to find out. After Devontae... After giving Devante food on a few occasions, the, dis- the DeKalb's decided to make another report. Dana contacted Child Protective Sor- Services on March 23rd, 2008. A CPS worker went to their home, but no one answered. They left their card on the door. The next day, March 24th, Sarah had texted her coworkers at 3 a.m. saying she was sick and wouldn't be able to make it to work. We can only assume that Sarah and Jen had started to panic. After years of trying to evade the authorities, they were once again in trouble. The DeKalbs noticed their car, which was usually parked in the front yard, was missing. The hearts were again on the run, and this time they would arrive at their final destination. Dun dun dun. So, the Hart family was driving on Highway 1. They were last seen alive at a Safeway grocery store in Fort Bragg, California. Jen was seen on a surveillance camera paying for about $20 worth of groceries. The next day, Monday, March 26, the Hart's GMC Yukon was seen at the bottom of a cliff. The scene was horrific. The car had been completely flipped over. They were only about 25 minutes away from the Safeway. So, what happened between the time they left the store? what caused them to drive off the side of a cliff. Police analyzed the car's airbag controllers to see if there was a possible explanation for this tragic accident. Um, What they thought was an accident, rather. What they found was greatly disturbing. Jen was driving the car um, at the time when she accelerated to approximately 90 miles an hour. She continued to drive straight off the side of the road without ever touching the brakes. This was determined after the investigators were unable to find any skid marks on the road. The car plunged off the cliff from a height of 100 feet. When it hit the rocks below, it not only killed Jen, but also her entire family. The police found that Jen had alcohol, uh, equivalent to about five beers in her system, and um, it was above the legal limit, obviously. Sarah and the 
Sarah and two of the children had antihistamines in their system at the, the time of their death. So antihistamines are a common treatment for motion sickness, but later investigation would reveal that the medication was taken for a much more sinister reason. No one in the car was wearing a seatbelt. So Do you think they specific? Never mind. That's fine. Oh, it just <laughs> going to say. Went- do you feel like they instructed the? Ch- I feel like kids probably naturally put seatbelts on, like just. I don't know. Do you think they like took them off of the kid? I, don't I know. well, okay. So if two of the kids, and I think it's possible that more of the children could have had antihistamines mm-hmm. in their system. Um, it was just uh, the family also too got separated so they didn't locate the bodies of some of the children till later or they only located partial they were only able to recover partial remains so it's just possible that they weren't able to test the the other children to see if they also had these like drowsy medications in their system um Mm. so it was later found that when jen was driving the car sarah was searching how can i easily overdose on over-the-counter medications can 500 milligrams of benadryl kill a 125 pound woman how long does it take to die of hypothermia while drowning in a car and in one of her final searches she was looking for a no-kill dog shelter which is a little weird. I think that looking up a shelter might indicate that someone had future plans. Um, yeah. But it just very much conflicted. I mean, maybe because I know that they did have pets from time to time. So maybe they were mm-hmm. she was trying to like make plans for after they died for their dogs to go to a shelter. I don't really know. But it just seemed yeah. to conflict with the other uh, the other searches. But it's very clear that the car i know in the beginning it was kind of um debated whether or not it was an accident but it's pretty clear that this was an intentional move on on their part i i just love the compassion that like americans have for dogs but not necessarily for people right like like the one i did last week like you're taking your like freaking dog to the vet but like not your kid to the hospital when they're dying okay Mm -hmm. (sighs) anyway After the crash, authorities went to the Hart home to investigate. They found that Jen and Sarah's rooms were decorated, but the children's rooms were bare. They saw that luggage had been left behind, so, um, and the family also didn't take their toothbrushes, so, um, you know, when you're determining if something was an accident or if it was done on Mm -hmm. purpose, this was just another sign that it was done on purpose. So, Mm -hmm. authorities believe Jen and Sarah had made the decision to end their lives before leaving. They thought that Jen consumed the alcohol to build up her courage to drive off the cliff. Upon further investigation, the authorities saw that um, about half the heart's income had come from caring for the children. They were taking in about um, $11,000 a year for two of the children. The money came from their stepfather from their birth family. And the other payments they received for the children brought them about $41,000 a year total. So Sarah was making about $45,000 a year um, at work, but um, so total that's about $86,000, which sounds like a lot, but also it covered the expenses for eight people. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's like $10,000 each. That is kind of a tight squeeze. Um, Mm -hmm. And two, it looked like upon trying to maintain the status quo or of like looking like the happy family they had made some 
purchases that put them in a lot of debt. So the family had recently purchased a $375,000 home and they also had separately accumulated $21,000 in credit card debt. So that is a possible motive of maybe the family or not the whole family, but Sarah and Jen were freaking out about, you know, their debt climbing up. What were they going to do to pay that off? Um, I want to say it was Devante too. There was one kid who had turned 18 and had aged out of receiving um, funding. So they were about to lose part of their funding as well for one of their children. Um, But while looking for clues in the home, the police also found that the refrigerator was filled with lunch meat, hot dogs, ham, and chicken breasts. The freezer was filled with pizza rolls, tilapia, and corn dogs. Um, So that in itself isn't weird. I think that's like pretty normal kid food. But Jen often boasted on the internet that the family was vegetarian and made it appear that they were, you know, super health conscious. Like there was a post about one of the kids getting kale and how the kid was like, oh, this is a snack for me. I'm like, yeah, sure, that happened. (laughs) I love kale, but like as a kid, you don't want kale. You want like pizza rolls or like chicken nuggets, you know? So it just, like, in itself, again, not very weird. I mean, other than the fact that we know the kids were underfed. um, But it's just weird that they were like, oh, we're vegetarians. Mm -hmm. Our kids are super healthy, but we're just giving them pizza rolls. Um, So this was, like I just said, another example of Jen keeping up appearances when things at home were very different. They also claimed that they didn't drink. Again, you know, people are allowed to drink. But it's weird to lie about it because the police found 17 bottles of wine displayed in the home. Um, Her social media also said that the family had gotten rid of their TVs and instead encouraged reading, outdoor exploring, and gardening. Another contradiction as the police found a TV in the family living room and they also had a tablet and a laptop. So going back to earlier when the neighbors said they never saw the kids outside, again, this was like, a weird thing because they were saying that their kids played outside we didn't let them watch tv just things that by themselves aren't weird you know it's not weird to yeah. let your kids watch tv but why lie it's about weird. it yeah like this weird performative like facade of what's actually happening mm-hmm. what's the point <laughs> so they were not able to recover the whole family right away after the crash They found 12-year-old Sierra's body on April 8th, about two weeks after, and Devante and Hannah's bodies were not recovered right away. In May of 2018, a foot was found on a beach near where the accident occurred. In October of that year, the mother of Marcus, Abigail, and Hannah came forward. She had heard about the accident through a family member and wanted to provide a sample of her DNA. Using this, they were able to identify that the remains belonged to Hannah. Um, So, at this point... I think that they still were never able to recover Devante's body. They have assumed that he passed away in the crash, but there, I think that there are like some conspiracy theorists that think that he might still be alive, but it's very unlikely that that's the case, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So let's yeah. talk about the biological families. So Sherry Davis, the biological mother of Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra, at the time where her kids were taken away, she was struggling with a, a drug addiction, and in 2006, she lost custody of her children. So she had four children in total, Dante, who was nine, Devante, four, Jeremiah, three, and Sierra, two. 
Originally, the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services had placed the children with their aunt, Priscilla Celestine. Priscilla had no criminal record and was working a steady job at a hospital. She even moved into a five-bedroom apartment to provide more space for the kids. She said the children loved playing hide-and-seek, their favorite foods were fish sticks and chicken nuggets, and Priscilla just really loved these kids and was doing her best to care for them. Um, She lost custody, though, after allowing the children to stay with their mother for, um, some sources say it was a few hours, Uh, I contradict myself, a few sentences later, they said it was only 45 minutes, but still not a long, it wasn't like they were staying there for a few days. Um, So Seems like a hasty reason to lose custody. Right. It's just my opinion. So Priscilla had been called into work at the last minute and needed someone to look after the kids. So their mother came to fix or came to fix them dinner. Uh, so in a, one of my sources, like I said, said that she'd only been there for 45 minutes when a social worker showed up unannounced. It's unclear if this was a surprise visit or if the social worker had been tipped off in some way. But hmm. either way, it's like especially disappointing if you consider all the reports made that like no one really followed up with with the yeah. Uh, Sarah and John. The hearts, yeah. So after the children were taken away, um, Priscilla tried to tell herself that this is this was just God's plan, and that they might have been in a better place. After the crash, Priscilla was contacted by a lawyer who once helped her fight to maintain custody of the kids. In 2007, Celeste had actually tried, or I keep saying Celeste. That's her last name, and I think it was Celestine, but I decided in my head her name was Celeste for some reason. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, So in 2007, Priscilla actually tried to adopt all four of the children, but her petition was denied. In 2008, when Sarah and Jen wanted to move forward with adopting Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra, um, uh, Priscilla said that they had no interest in adopting Dante because he'd acted violently when he was removed from the home in 2005. So... I didn't know this part of it at first. Um, I think it's very weird and maybe shouldn't have been allowed for them to adopt three kids, but completely single one out. And it clearly had a big effect yeah. on, on Dante, as we will learn in just a second. So mm-hmm. at the time of the crash, Dante was in prison for robbery. Dante was arrested when he was 19 and was currently serving three years for his sentence. Dante promised himself that um, he was going to find his siblings once he got out of prison. It served as a mantra, mantra, I don't know, for him, and it gave him hope. He didn't learn about their deaths until after he was released. Because he was so close to the end of his sentence, his family didn't want to jeopardize his chance of getting out. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Which is so messed up. I understand so why they did it, but, like, that's horrible. Yeah. So Dante felt cold when he was told about his siblings. He hoped that he would be able to reconnect with them one day. This wish was taken from him when Jen and Sarah uh, was, were responsible for, for killing his family. An article from the Washington Post tells the story of Dante's past path following the foster care to prison pipeline. A few days um, after he was separated from his siblings for the last time, Dante who was only 10 years old at the time, tried to kill himself while he was in a therapeutic foster home. 
while in his so sad no while in his placements he asks his caseworkers about his siblings he begged for a chance to visit them or to talk to them on the phone or even just to hear what they were up to a lot of dante's anger came from blaming himself for not being able to be there for his little siblings caseworkers got in touch with jen and sarah and asked if dante could have contact and they said no which just to me shows like you are not good people yeah you're you're not thinking about the best interest for these kids like at the end of the day like you're yeah you're their adoptive parents but they had a life before you and this person is literally their brother who's a child that's yeah that's so messed up like this kid's literally was nine years old at the time and you decided oh we're not taking him in because he has some behavioral issues yeah it's selfish it really is selfish um so dante had wondered to himself if it was because he was bad which is it's just so sad reading all this um he was shuffled back and forth between foster homes and shelters all while being heavily medicated for his diagnoses of bipolar disorder adhd and oppositional defiant disorder he was prescribed oh gosh uh Depakote? Depakote? I don't know. I should have looked up how these were pronounced. Um, Risperidone, clonidine, trazodone, cogetine, Tenex, Concerta, and Adderall over the years, often being on more than one of them at the same time. Too much. Yes. So when children are stuck in the system for long periods of time, they can sometimes pick up a lot of diagnoses here and there um and when they arrive at their new place uh, it's just because it's in your record they'll just assume it's truth and, and move on um so in the article michael schneider a retired texas child welfare judge said it was common for children to receive a diagnosis from one place and have it stay on your record and even if the diagnosis is not entirely accurate it will follow you to your new placements and people will just assume that like oh must be true um so in some cases you might be getting medicated for something that you don't even have yeah and also just thinking about like the three diagnosis or diagnoses um bipolar adhd and oppositional defiant disorder like there's so much overlap that i wouldn't be surprised if at most he only had like one of these things uh, because it's not uncommon to experience, like, symptoms of ADHD with, like, bipolar disorder or oppositional defiant disorder, um, like, experiencing that as part of right. symptoms of bipolar disorder. But I think probably what was really happening was this kid just had some emotional, like, issues, trouble focusing, and just needed, like, more care and right. probably just, like therapeutic intervention for like his emotional distress Um, i mean honestly was his reaction to his situation that absurd i think that's how we view mental diet mental health diagnoses is is someone's reaction to an event typical or is it you know is it like anxiety is having an overly adverse reaction to something that maybe isn't that anxiety producing um so in this case this kid was taken away from his family from his mom um then all three of his siblings were adopted to a family that didn't want him 
So like to me, that's like a perfectly normal reaction as a child to having not only being taken away from your family, but also that's you got the message early on that no one wants you. So you're think about how that's going to shape how you think about yourself and how you feel about yourself. And then he's just his environment is changing so often that he doesn't have. I think as a child, it's important to have um, either like a singular caretaker or, you know, your mom and dad, your mom and mom, your dad and dad, just having one person who's your person to go to. He did not have that. So in 2011, uh, a group called the Children's Right followed a class action lawsuit against Texas. Um, it, I wrote this twice. In 2011, they filed a class action lawsuit in 2011 um, <laughs> for their treatment of children in long-term care. They argued that children were frequently moved around, that they were often over-medicated, and experienced uh, physical and sexual abuse at the hands of their caregivers. In 2015, a Texas judge ruled that Texas had violated the rights of these children. She said that children were more damaged than they were when they entered state care. This led to an order for reforms across the system. So like I was saying earlier, the good news is that there's already reforms in place. Um, There's always room for improvement, especially, um, you know, considering that things have been so bad. So I'm glad to hear, although I'm sure it's, you know, it's not going to be perfect overnight. There's going to be a lot of need for evaluation and need to um, just keep improving in in any way we can. But um, Mm -hmm. so let's talk about uh, Marcus, Hannah and Abigail. So in 2019, the biological mother of Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail, Tammy Sharosh, spoke to Appeal.org about the death of her children. She had only found out about their deaths after the Appeal contacted her stepmother a few months earlier. Law law enforcement had access to the adoption records, but instead of reaching out to the family, they put a call through media asking relatives to come forward. Since Tammy didn't see any of these calls, she didn't reach out. Um, So on the one hand, I want to say, I, you know, it's within the rights of a parent to, if they give their children up, to say, you know, I don't want to be contacted about my kids. But it's just, Mm -hmm. it's very weird. And especially an incident like this, there's no way that someone should have had to learn about this through anyone but the like law enforcement or and it's similar to like your other one where the biological mother didn't find out um that people suffocated her child right like until a few months later yeah it just i don't i don't get it i guess i don't know (laughs) yeah so tammy relinquished her rights to her children in 2004 and hadn't seen them um in 15 years before they died. She'd been charged with medical neglect. Tammy was poor and she was just trying to get by. She experienced chronic homelessness since she was 17 years old. She moved out to live with a boyfriend, but the situation didn't pan out and her grandfather didn't allow her to come back home. Tammy had been taken from her mother's custody when she was a toddler and lived with her dad's parents for most of her life. Tammy didn't have a great relationship with her father and when she was 13, she threatened suicide. She was sent to the state hospital, her first of three stays for threatened or attempted suicide. She was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and major depression. 
So Tammy first got involved with CPS after Hannah, who was one at the time, got some ant bites while she was attending a birthday party. The bites got infected and Hannah ended up with a really hard to treat staph infection. Their doctors made a report and a case was opened. Tammy, who was pregnant with Abigail at the time, got really scared and decided to put Abigail up for adoption. But after Tammy moved in with her grandparents, she saw a light at the end of the tunnel. So she reconsidered um, putting her child up for adoption. Uh, Abigail was born shortly after Christmas, but less than two months later, Tammy lost custody of her children for the final time. In 2004, Hannah developed an upper respiratory infection that turned into pneumonia. Um, Tammy took Hannah to the doctor in early February, and the doctor changed Hannah's asthma meds. She was sent home. According to the police uh, report filed a month later, Tammy did not show for a doctor's appointment scheduled for the following day. It also claimed that Tammy had waited too long to take Hannah to the hospital. Tammy had said she called, so this was after the doctor's visit, she ended up calling an ambulance, but she didn't have anyone to watch her children. So while Hannah was off in the ambulance, she was waiting at home to, to get a ride. So Tammy believes this triggered a call to uh, a CPS worker named Sharon Kirby, who assured Tammy that they weren't going to take her kids away. They were just there to help. And while they were at the hospital, a nurse came in to talk to Sharon. When Sharon returned, she had the paperwork in her hand to remove Tammy's children. (sighs) This is ridiculous. This is like exactly, I just feel like a lot of times when we're thinking about crimes, what's really happening is they're criminalizing poverty. Mm -hmm. Because if this woman just had a couple of resources, Mm -hmm. a couple additional resources to help her in the situation, like, I think the outcomes would have been a lot different. It's not, like, she's not a doctor. Like, her daughter developed this upper respiratory infection. Like, maybe, like, who knows? Like Maybe like, her health care wasn't that great. And she... Yeah, or she couldn't take off of work. Right. Like, all sorts of different things that could be in play. And yet, if there were, you know, state, like, subsidized, like, resources to help this woman, like so many things would have been different or in the case where there's just an emergency where a kid needs to go to the hospital and you don't have care i mean i remember my little sister there was one day she was twirling around and she fell and hit her head on our fireplace so she had to go get stitches and you know luckily my parents were able to drop us off with our neighbors it happened at like nighttime so it was like a little unusual so luckily they had a good relationship with our neighbors and our neighbors also had kids that we were friends with but um you know think about how differently that might have gone if we didn't have uh, neighbors nearby that were willing to step in and help or if you know obviously my my family's pretty um tight with like our grandparents and and things like that but if we didn't if we didn't have access to other people within the area to step in, my parents might have been put in a really bad position. So mm-hmm. it's just, you know, why weren't, why didn't the CPS worker, why is there, you know, not emergency kind of people that can like step in and help out in a situation? It's, yeah. It, and it's very much clearly the idea is that if you're in a bad spot and you ask for help, you're going to get screwed over you're going to get your kids taken away. So that's another factor yeah. that might have made her not want to reach out in the first place because they're just going to tell you you're being a bad mom, we're taking your kids away. 
Mm-hmm. It's messed up. Um, so at first, it looked like the kids were going to a foster family in Texas near where Tammy lived, a black couple with three children. Tammy felt hopeful that they would be able to provide a good home for her children who were biracial. So Tammy herself was white, but her kids were, um, their father was black, so they were biracial. And she thought, you know, that, and that's like you were saying earlier, a matter of you going into a family that might understand you a little bit better or might have more cultural considerations. Um, mm-hmm. Like, clearly that did not happen. Um, so they told Tammy they would, this family even said that they were going to let the children stay in touch with Tammy. Um, and so she signed away her rights, believing her children would be living nearby. So Tammy was charged with, with child endangerment after the incident with Hannah. She was given th- excessive. Oh my God. It's like, I, it's appalling. It gets worse. Yeah. Don't, don't wait. Don't worry. Don't worry. Well, don't worry. It gets worse. So she was given three years of deferred adju- adju- adjudication. Um, the article said it was similar to probation. So she was given probation basically. Um, but she was unable to pay the monthly court fees, which were $225 total. She had also missed assigned community service and did not notify the court of a change in address, which like not notifying the court of a change in address. Like maybe you just forgot to do it or like some of my credit cards still have like my home address. I've never switched them over. Like that's just not necessarily something that you would be thinking about. But so Tammy was given 30 days in jail in 2005 as punishment for for these things. And when she got out, she failed again to follow the court orders. These orders included paying $1,266 in fees. And when Tammy couldn't pay, she was sentenced to six months in jail. So again, being punished for being poor, Tammy was on a fixed income of about $600 a month from her disability benefits, and she just couldn't afford to pay the fees. And Tammy did express regret for not following their other mandates, but she said she just felt lost without her children, which is completely understandable if you lose all your children and they were supposed to be able to stay in contact with you, but then they just disappear to someone who's not going to let you have contact. That certainly seems like that might cause a depressive episode or you know you might think to yourself what's the point like I don't even care so to me again that falls within a normal reaction we can't expect someone to care about you know doing their duty in in the system when she's not going to get her kids back if she does it like why why does she care so yeah all very frustrating things So the story of the Hart family shows that reforms are needed in our system. There were five states that were involved with the adoptions and abuse allegations of the Hart children. Thomas Alman, the Mendocino County Sheriff Coroner, told CNN that there were systematic failures that could have been prevented, and he hoped this would be an enlightening moment for lawmakers, and it might demonstrate the need for a national database for child abuse allegations. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I'm I'm shocked to hear that there, and I didn't know that there isn't one already, but they were able to just avoid allegations by moving. Yeah. They just, so, it. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. What is the, we have technology now, like, should be able to do it. It's not like in the 
like old timey days where like police departments didn't communicate with each other at all. I think or... this is I think it's it's especially needed in my opinion for like foster children and adopted children. Not to say that like like um biological parents aren't like abusing abusing their kids but like we hear Mm -hmm. cases of it happening especially for like more or less i guess transient like children so kids that do move through the foster system like it's interesting that there wouldn't be like some sort of a national foster like database about like allegations against certain parents so that you can kind of be mindful i don't know mindful but like keep tabs on or you know if a new family moves to this jurisdiction and somebody calls in a report they can look at this mm-hmm. database and be like oh these kids were adopted out of xyz and there's been allegations before um yeah i don't know <sighs> but it, it's so if you look at the if you contrast between the care or what happened when the biological parents were reported for certain things versus when the adoptive parents were reported Mm-hmm. clearly in some cases when the adoptive parents were reported nobody even showed up yeah. or followed through yeah it does not make an ounce of sense our music is the track wasteland by joseph mcdade his patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.